So you want to try Linux. Hey, my name's Klaatu, and I'm the host of GNU World Order. This is an episode dedicated to people who haven't tried Linux yet, or who maybe have tried it and haven't really understood what they just tried. Hopefully this will shed some light on some of the more obscure topics that I cover in the GNU World Order podcast. I recognize that a lot of times I speak to advanced users, and wanted to make sure that people who maybe aren't there yet have a place to start. That's what this episode is. So, Linux, what is it? Well, it's an operating system. You may or may not already know that. But the real question is, do you really know what an operating system is? I think most of us believe we know what an operating system is, but if you sit down and really try to define it, you realize it's a pretty complex question. Most of us usually think of the operating system as the thing you see on the screen when you're using your computer. And we can take that further and say, well, it's the thing that you see on your computer when you're not running some other application. But really what we're seeing then is the desktop. And what's a desktop but another application? The desktop is a handy application. It gives you access to a lot of important features of your computer, like a volume control or a network manager, so you can choose which wireless network to join. And it probably has a control panel feature so that you can add printers and scanners and other devices. And it lets you see and manage all of your files with a file manager application of some kind. But how do all of those things get there? How is there a volume to control? What's picking up the presence of a wireless network? How does your computer even know what a file is? All of these aspects are managed and provided by the actual operating system, which most technically inclined people define as a kernel. When you power on a computer, the first thing that happens is that a little chip on your motherboard on the inside of the computer searches for a bootable disk. Specifically, it's looking for a bootloader. Once this chip finds something bootable, it passes over control to that, and that is, of course, a kernel. So the kernel grabs control of the computer, loads kernel modules so that it can talk to outside devices like a keyboard and a mouse, printer, whatever else you have, a monitor, and then the kernel passes control over to the actual operating system. And the operating system, as I've been trying to imply here, isn't really a monolithic singular thing. It's, it's a bunch of different processes kind of grouped together. Those processes are everything that you normally do with your computer. It's all of the different programs that let you plug a thumb drive into your computer and have it appear on your desktop. It is the desktop. It's the network control and the volume control and all of those other normal computer functions. So since you're here listening to this right now, I'm going to assume that you're game to try this, and I'm not going to try to sell you on Linux for the moment. I will get to some selling points later in this episode, but I'd rather discuss the, the actual tasks that this requires so that you know what's involved before I try to sell you on something that quite likely you're already curious about, or else you wouldn't be listening to this show. So, first of all, how do you get Linux? It's pretty easy because it tends to be zero dollars and very, very available online. Anyone can try it at any time. In fact, that is one of the selling points, but I said I'd get to that later. So, in order to get Linux onto your computer, here are some of the steps, broadly speaking. The first step is to go get Linux. I will mention that there are lots of what we call distributions of Linux. That means that different teams around the world have kind of collected all the bits and pieces of what they consider to be the best operating system, and they put it out online for people to download, and they kind of 
put their name on that download so that you know who put all that software together. These typically manifest almost like brands, really. You can probably think of some if you've done any research into this already. For instance, Ubuntu Linux, Fedora Linux, Slackware Linux, Linux Mint. For now, we'll assume that you've picked one, and so you would go to that website. You would go to the website of the Linux distribution that you've decided to try. Usually on the website, there's a prominent button that says Download. Click that button. There are typically at least two different varieties, sometimes more, of downloads for you to choose from. The most common two to choose from are 64-bit or 32-bit. 64-bit is the modern standard for computers. It means the number of numbers that they can manage at the same time is greater than, for instance, 32-bit. 32-bit at this point is basically legacy support. If you're dealing with a very old computer, get the 32-bit just in case. But in the worst-case scenario, you may download a 64-bit image and then find that your computer can't handle it, and so you'll have to go back and download the 32-bit image instead. It's not like it's going to ruin your computer or anything. It will tell you pretty early on whether or not it is 64-bit capable. Once you've downloaded the image, you need to either burn it to a DVD or write it to a USB thumb drive. Again, most modern computers can boot from a USB thumb drive, so that tends to be, at least in my eyes, the easier option. But if you know that your computer doesn't like to boot off of a USB thumb drive, or if you just don't have a USB thumb drive, then you can burn it to disk, if your computer still has a optical drive, obviously. Now, both of those tasks are made pretty easy by different applications that you can get for free online. There is one for USB thumb drives called Etcher, that's E-T-C-H-E-R, and that is located at etcher.io. It's cross-platform software, so it will work on Mac, Windows, or Linux, and it steps you through the process of making your OS image into a thumb drive. The steps basically are launch Etcher, point it to the file, the .iso file that you've downloaded from the Linux distribution's website, which you want to burn, and then show it which USB thumb drive to burn that image to. Now, burning it to a DVD or a CD, if it's a really small image, is something that you can do with open-source software as well. I haven't used that software in a long time, so I don't even know what's out there. Look on the internet for open-source CD-burning software. You'll find something, if your current OS doesn't already have a solution to burn things to disk. Now, again, you only need to do one of those things. You don't need to both burn the CD and burn it to USB thumb drive. You can do either of those two things. And certainly read what the Linux distribution itself suggests to you. For instance, Slackware does not, at least at the time of this recording, support burning the Slackware image to USB thumb drive. You'd have to do it to an optical media, whereas other distributions, I don't know, they may not even support optical media anymore and expect you to be using the USB thumb drive. So a little bit of reading on the site usually helps. The third option here is the old classic throw money at it. If for some reason you don't want to burn a Linux distribution to a disk and you don't want to burn one to a USB thumb drive, you can go to osdisk.com, that's O-S-D-I-S-C.com, and buy a pre-burned or pre-imaged either disk 
or a thumb drive. You pay them a couple of bucks, they send you the product, and then you can boot your computer off of it and install Linux. Hey, speaking of installing Linux, let's talk about that process. Now that you've got a disk or a thumb drive with a Linux installer on it, you can reboot your computer and boot it off of the install media. To do this, you need first to have the install media plugged in or inserted into your computer, whether it's a disk or a thumb drive, it needs to be in your computer. Then you want to reboot. Once you reboot, you'll need to interrupt the boot sequence, the normal boot sequence, and tell the computer to look somewhere else other than its default location, which is the hard drive, to find its operating system. This is different on each computer, as I've said before. You might find that it's the escape key, you might find that it's the F2 or the F8 key or the delete key. It depends on who built your computer, like the manufacturer of specifically the motherboard. It usually tells this to you when you first turn it on. If you look, you'll see just for a couple of seconds usually, it will tell you how to interrupt boot or to configure or to enter setup immediately after you've powered it on. Some computers don't do that or someone may have turned it off at some point in the history of this computer's life, so you may have to look online for the model of your computer to find out how you interrupt the boot or enter BIOS or EFI. But that is ultimately what you're looking for. You're looking to enter either BIOS or UEFI. Now the exception here are Macs. You can't access the EFI on a Mac, they won't let you. So you'll just do the option key to choose what to boot from. You'll choose the bootable device that it recognizes, the USB thumb drive or the disk that you've inserted, and then you'll let it boot. And Linux will have to install some hacks onto your computer in order to interrupt the boot sequence on its own so that you can get to Linux whenever you boot. Otherwise the Mac will persistently attempt to boot Mac OS and ignore anything else available. So on any other PC, uh, on any non-Mac, you can enter the UEFI screen. Once again, depending on the manufacturer of your PC, it really depends what you're going to see here, but I can at least describe what you're looking to do. The first thing that you need to do is set the default bootable device. Right now, it is set to your hard drive, because that's where the operating system is installed. But what you need to do is give your computer the permission to look elsewhere before resorting to the hard drive. So find either the CD drive or DVD drive or your USB thumb drive that you have plugged into your computer right now with the OS installer on it and promote that to the top of the list. How you do this may differ on the manufacturer, but that is what you are looking to do, is reassign the boot order so that first your computer looks at a DVD or a CD drive, and then a USB thumb drive, and then finally the hard drive. This way, when you reboot again, after you've done all of this, it will first find the Linux installer and opt to boot into that and ignore the internal hard drive. Now, Later, when you boot, you'll remove the CD or the USB thumb drive, and your computer will not find a Linux installer, and it will boot to the hard drive, which by that time, of course, you'll have installed Linux onto. There may also be an option to specify which kind of hard drive your computer is willing to boot. The old kind of hard drive structure was based on a partition structure that had the MBR, or master boot record, at the very beginning of the hard drive. The newer kind is the GPT structure, which allows for larger hard drive sizes. You probably want to enable both kinds. Now, they may not call it MBR and GPT. They may call it legacy and GUID, G-U-I-D, boot. 
or any number of terms that they choose. The key is to really open it up here. Be flexible. There's no reason not to, and it'll ensure that your Linux partition is able to be recognized and booted. If for some reason you want to rein it in later and restrict the options to ensure that only your drive is being booted, you can play around with that later. For now, focus on getting Linux installed and booted. The second thing you need to do is disable something called Secure Boot. Different motherboards might call it a different name and also provide a different way of either enabling or disabling it. Secure Boot is a system that Microsoft developed and paid to have baked into motherboards, such that when you turn on your computer, the motherboard checks for a special digital signature provided by the hard drive where the operating system lives. Unfortunately, Microsoft didn't share this information with anyone else, so no one but Microsoft, in theory, can boot from a modern motherboard without this special Microsoft-only digital signature. Luckily, there's usually an option to disable this quote-unquote feature. Now, don't worry, all of that setup was truly just that. It was set up. You do that once, and now your computer is set to look at more places than just your internal hard drive. So you don't have to do this every time you boot Linux. This was just to get into the installer. Let's assume you've done all of that correctly. You've exited BIOS or UEFI, or you've pressed Option on a Mac. One way or another, your computer finds a Linux installer image to boot from. Once your Linux installer is loaded, you'll see something on your screen that looks vaguely like an installer program. They can differ a little or a lot between Linux distribution and Linux distribution, but the idea is always the same, and that is that you're going to run a program to install the Linux distribution that you've chosen. It doesn't make sense for me to try to run you through each little button that you have to click, so instead I'm going to review what an installer does. Now, you've probably installed at least some software before. It may have been as simple as dragging an icon from a thing that you've downloaded over onto your own hard drive, or maybe you had to double-click a installer wizard that opens up and guides you through the different steps that it needs to take in order to get software onto your computer. But you may not have ever installed an operating system before, because they usually just come with the computer. You open the computer up, you turn it on, and there's your operating system, as if by magic. So this process is a little bit new to a lot of people, and even if you have installed an operating system before, this is bound to be a little bit different than what you're used to. But the idea here is that the Linux installer is going to locate an internal hard drive, and it is going to offer to install the Linux operating system on that drive. Now if you do any research on this online, you'll know that there are two different ways to do this. One is to do exactly what I just said. Install Linux, the Linux operating system, onto the hard drive. The other option is to partition that hard drive. That is, to make one hard drive appear to be two hard drives. On one fake hard drive, or on one partition, you can have one operating system, for instance Windows or Mac OS. And then on the other partition, you can have the Linux operating system. And then when you boot your computer, you can choose, right at boot time, which operating system to actually boot into. I know that some people are fans of the dual booting motif. I am not. In my experience, dual booting does a couple of different things. 
Most importantly, it puts your data at risk. That is, the likelihood of you accidentally ruining the operating system that's already installed on your hard drive is a lot greater if you go in and try to partition your hard drive and move all your data over into one container, as it were, and then make a new container for the Linux operating system and put that on there. Now you've got two operating systems on your hard drive. Both of them are trying to update things at different times. I mean, they're not running at the same time, but when you go into one operating system, it, as far as it knows, it's the only operating system in the world, much less on your computer. So it tries to update something, and then when you reboot, suddenly your computer's confused because it no longer sees one of those partitions for whatever reason, because the other operating system didn't know it existed. It gets complex, it's a little bit dangerous, there's usually a way to recover from most mistakes, not all of them. I'm just not a fan. Secondly, I think that dual booting encourages you not to use your Linux operating system. And if you're interested in Linux, to use Linux, then you may as well install it and start using it. In other words, the goal is usually to use one or the other operating system. It's very rarely that you want to use both. Use one on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, and then use the other on Wednesday, Friday, and the weekend. And if that truly is your use case, then it might be worth getting a second hard drive. Now, it's not always possible to put a second hard drive in your computer. If you have a laptop that doesn't have an expansion bay, for instance, then you may not have that option. But there are Linux distributions that run entirely off of a USB drive, a USB thumb drive. And so you can realistically use Linux off of a USB thumb drive quite happily and never have to touch the internal hard drive of your computer. So if that's your goal, then rather than dual boot, I would encourage you to use a distribution off of a USB thumb drive instead. In other words, I'm encouraging you to dedicate your internal hard drive to one operating system. There are people who would disagree with me, and you're free to disagree with me, and you can do whatever you want. But the way that I'm going to assume that you're doing this is the way that I would do it, which is one operating system per hard drive. So when you install Linux, you'll point it to an internal hard drive, and you'll tell it to install Linux onto that partition. Now, some installers will detect another operating system and offer to do a dual boot for you. If you're set on trying that, you're certainly welcome to. It's your computer. You've already heard my opinion on it. What I do is I make sure that all of my data on the hard drive has been backed up, then I boot the computer to Linux, and then I install Linux on the hard drive, erasing all of the existing data. Then I go to my backup, pull all of my data off of it, and put it onto my Linux hard drive, and start using Linux. So the install process will largely be that. It will be you pointing the installer to a hard drive and telling it to install, and generally overriding a bunch of safety features that Linux installers usually come with, trying to tell you that if you do what you're about to do, you're going to erase the hard drive. But certainly if, if you're doing a single boot setup, then that is actually what you want, and let Linux install itself onto your hard drive. If you're trying anything else, do your research, make backups, and have a go at it. Once Linux has been installed, it usually doesn't take too long. The install actually is just reformatting the hard drive and then copying software over onto the hard drive in such a way that it will boot and present a desktop to you. 
So once it's installed, you can, again, reboot. Now, when you reboot, of course, you'll want to take out the thumb drive or the optical disk that you had in the computer to get to the installer. You don't want to get back into the installer now, of course. So once you reboot, remove all of those, all of the installer media that you have in your computer and let the computer reboot to its default location, which is the internal hard drive. Linux uses a convention called a bootloader, which other computers use as well. They just don't necessarily call them a bootloader, and they certainly usually don't show it to you. But Linux shows it to you, and this is a, a menu at the very beginning of the boot. When you first turn your computer on, you'll get a little menu, and it lists what versions of your operating system have been installed. Now, really, there's only one version, and that's whatever you installed, but a lot of times Linux, for safety, will keep older copies of the Linux kernels so that if you upgrade and something goes wrong, you can step back and try an older version. These are set to time out, so you can either sit there and watch the clock count down until it boots, or you can just press return. Your first boot of Linux will probably have a few setup steps that you have to perform. For instance, you will probably have to make a user account if you didn't, didn't do that during the install process. But eventually you're delivered into a probably a fairly familiar desktop environment. That is, you'll see on your computer a computer desktop, just like you would with any other operating system. And you might be a little bit surprised at how familiar it feels. I mean, you've almost certainly never used the desktop that you're looking at. There are a couple of different ones. That's an interesting feature of Linux, is that if you don't like one desktop environment, you can try a different one. It's pretty much unparalleled in any other computer operating system that I'm aware of, anyway. Windows or Mac, it's not like you actually have a choice of the interface you're given to use. I mean, you can change your desktop wallpaper, maybe, change a color theme, but in Linux you can change the, the paradigm. You can change everything about the way that you interact with your computer. And, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So, now that you're staring at a Linux computer, I think your first task is to start using it. That, I think, for a lot of people, seems like the really, really scary part. I mean, you've gone through the hardest part of installing an operating system. So, in theory, it's smooth sailing from here. But a lot of people get intimidated by an unfamiliar environment. They get confused when an action that they perform on their desktop doesn't do exactly the same thing that it would on their old operating system. Fact of the matter is, you're going to, in the first couple of months of using Linux, you're going to find things that you love about Linux, that you can't believe other operating systems haven't thought of yet. And you're also going to find stuff that you can't believe Linux would ever do. You can't believe people actually use it in this state, and you're going to be confused as to why it isn't the same as your other operating system. These are both very, very natural. And I'll tell you what else, you're going to start con to confuse the two. Certainly, I was finding in my first year or two, honestly, that I would fall in love with a feature of Linux, and in my own mind, I would convince myself that it was something that Linux borrowed from Mac OS, which was the operating system that I'd used, that I had run before I switched to Linux. And then one day, I happened to be in front of a Mac, and I was using it, and I started to try to do things that I swore Linux had borrowed from Mac, and it turns out that, no, it was something that Linux had done itself, 
and that I'd gotten so used to and felt so comfortable with that I just assumed it was a carryover from my old OS. So these are all perfectly natural, perfectly normal emotions to go through. But the important part is to use Linux. You'll never get used to it. You'll never understand it. You'll never learn to love it. You'll never get good at it if you're not actually using it. I think all too often I hear about people who dip into Linux once every three or four months. And then they get frustrated, and so they go back to their old operating system for another three to four months. And then they'll dip into Linux again for a week, get frustrated, and go back. This is a recipe for frustration. At some point, you have to decide whether you're going to use Linux or not. Maybe you only use it for certain tasks. That's okay. That's a great place to start. But you want to be sure to use it often enough to get that muscle memory and that familiarity built up that you have built up with your old OS in the past 20 years of your life or however long you've been using computers. Don't expect Linux to be like your old operating system. You wouldn't actually want it to be like your old operating system. Trust me on that. But you do need to spend time with it so that you know why you don't want it to be like your old operating system. The funny thing about operating systems, as I discussed at the very beginning of this very episode, is that the operating system itself doesn't really seem to do that much. It's kind of the thing that you see when you're not doing anything else. So part of, quote, using Linux, unquote, is using all of the applications available for Linux. And there are a lot, but we need to talk about how to get them. Now, historically, back in the old days of Linux, there wasn't really that much open source software happening. So when someone released a Linux-based operating system, they were basically releasing the OS and all possible applications that you could get on that OS. And I'm not kidding you when I say that all of the possible applications could probably fit on a DVD today. Maybe not exactly, but it's probably pretty close. There just wasn't that much out back then, and they tended to be smaller anyway. So, in a way, Linux delivered its operating system on a CD to its users, and there was an expectation that you would be on a network, and that whenever you wanted any application, all you had to do was type in a special command to enable that application. Now, we didn't call it enabling, it was, it was installing the application, but that was the sense, that, that your app store was part of your operating system. And all you did was pull any application from a server somewhere, and it would appear on your computer, and then you could start using it. That was the model. And that is technically still the model today. Now, there's a lot more open source software out there these days. A lot more is being written specifically for Linux. And so this model doesn't exactly fit anymore. The online repositories, the servers, that offer a bunch of different applications, they still do offer a lot of applications. I think 20,000 20, packages was, was one of the, the most recent counts for a particularly large distribution called Debian. And that's a great feeling. You're using your computer, it suddenly occurs to you that you need some application, and you know that all you have to do is 
type in a command, and then that application is on your computer, ready for you to use. There's a transparency and ease of use to it that, that feels very liberating. For that reason, I guess, other operating systems, relatively recently, have borrowed that concept in the form of app stores. But just like an app store on any other OS, the Linux repositories are limited in scope. They can only include the software that the maintainers of that server are aware of. And frankly, there's a lot more open source out there than any one or any ten people can possibly keep track of. So there are other ways now to install software on your Linux OS. I'll just mention each method, but I'll let you discover the specifics on your own. So first of all, we have what we call the package manager. That's the thing that you use to look at your distribution's servers, find an application, and then install it. So it's the app store of Linux. Now on Ubuntu Linux, they, they have a very specific interface for that. It's called the Ubuntu Software Center. Other Linux distributions call it something different. Generally, the, the generic phrase is add and remove packages, or add and remove software. So if you look for something like that in your application menu, you'll probably stumble upon something. The process is straightforward. You search for an application, either by name or by function. In other words, you may not know the name of a music player, but you know that you're looking for something to play music in, so you could search for music player. Or maybe you do know the name, and you could search directly for VLC, or Amarok, or whatever it is you prefer. Once you find the application that you want to install, you click the Install button, it installs, and you're done. It's as easy as that. Now, one of the many great features of Linux that you may not even think to ask for is that a lot of the applications that you'll be using have text-only equivalents, meaning that you could do an install of a software simply by typing a command. Now, you may not know many commands yet. If you've never used a Unix or Linux before, you most certainly don't know many commands, possibly any commands. But at some point in the future, you may want to learn some commands, because you might find it faster than clicking around on the desktop. For instance, I do a fair number of Linux installs and configurations for businesses that do multimedia work. Now, I know from experience that if I tried to install all 35 of the specialized media applications that they require, it would probably take me a day. Clicking around, waiting for things to install, and then clicking the next one, and waiting for it to install, and then searching for the next one, clicking and waiting. If I have a list of packages that I want to be installed, and I know the command to install applications, then all I need to do is type, for instance, sport install, and then I give it the name of the file with all those packages listed in it, and I can go take a coffee break while the computer does all of my work for me. That's the traditional way of installing software on Linux, and arguably that should be your first stop. If you're thinking, I want to install such and such an application, don't go to the website, don't open up Firefox to download an installer, just open up your software center or go to a terminal, if you know the command, and install it directly from your distribution's servers. It's faster, it's safer, and it's optimized for what you're running. As I've said, there's a lot more software out there than any one Linux distribution can possibly know about or have on their servers. 
And recently, the, there's been a push so that developers on the sort of outside of Linux, as much as there is an inside of Linux, can develop software for Linux and post a package for people to download without having the infrastructure of a, of a distribution server and having software repositories and so on. There are three different formats geared towards this model. One is called app images. App images are nice. You go to a website, you click on the download for Linux link, and you get an app image. It's a self-contained file. You double-click it, it runs the application. It is as simple as that. There really is no install. Uh, the first time you click, uh, the first time you start an app image, it will ask you whether you want it to integrate itself into your system, which isn't exactly an install, but it, it'll feel like an install. It's a really, really nice experience. It's probably my favorite of all install methods, to be honest, because it's just so easy and it's very, very portable, meaning that if you've got Linux on your computer and you have a really cool application that someone wants to try on their Linux computer, all you have to do is hand them a thumb drive with that app image on it, and now they've suddenly got that application. It's really, really easy. The only disadvantage to an app image is that it does tend to be a much larger download. So while you might be able to install something that's, uh, I don't know, 33 megabytes from the distribution server, if you go and get the app image of the same thing, you'll find that the app image is 350 megabytes. And that's just because when you're downloading something from a distribution server, from a, a software repository, it knows what you have on your computer, and it knows what not to give you again. An app image doesn't know any of that, and there is a lot of sort of duplication of effort happening. But if you're okay with larger downloads, app images are really, really nice. I encourage you to use them whenever you see them. The other two methods are very similar. One is called flat pack, and one is called snap. They basically do the same thing, they're just by two different teams and maybe one day they'll kind of merge or something, but for now we have Flatpak and Snap. The user experience is pretty similar to app images. You might go to a website, and instead of a, a download link, they'll have maybe an install with Flatpak or an install with Snap link. Click on that. Your computer does download a tiny little file that just sort of provides a couple of reference points for your Flatpak or Snap system that's kind of running on your computer. It installs from that reference point and now you've got it installed in your computer. It appears as if though it's been installed. There's a lot of technicality about it that technically it's not installed on your computer. It's in a sort of a container on your computer. It won't really feel all that different to you from having installed something from a software repository from your distribution. But for the developers, it is a lot easier to push a flat pack or a snap package out than it is to package it up for a Linux distribution's software repository. Now, just like on any other operating system, there are technically other possible ways to install software. You might find a random little project somewhere that decides not to package their application into an installer at all, and they just post it online, you download it, and you never have to install it. You're just expected to run it straight from the desktop. Installing isn't something that's magical and mysterious. It's just a method for an operating system to integrate an application into the rest of the system so that if you click on a JPEG 
on your desktop, for instance, then your operating system knows what application to open it in. Something that's installed is usually an option for that sort of thing, whereas something that doesn't get installed isn't an option, because your operating system doesn't realize that that's an available application. So primarily, you're looking at your software center, or your package manager, whatever it's called on the distribution that you've chosen. And then increasingly, lately, you may also stumble upon app images, or flat packs, or snaps. Well, look, if you're going to be listening to this show, you may as well get used to the idea that we take coffee breaks here. So let's do that. Go get yourself a cup of coffee. We'll come back, and we'll talk a little bit about distributions, why you want to use Linux at all, and where you can go to learn more. Okay, you're back, hopefully with a good cup of coffee, or tea, or whatever beverage you prefer, although I only officially recognize coffee. So let's talk about the question that you're inevitably going to be driven to ask if you start down the path of Linux, and that is, which distribution should I use? Again, a Linux distribution is the Linux operating system as put together by a unique team of people. There are a lot of takes on what function a Linux distribution serves in the, for lack of a better term, marketplace of operating systems, or Linux. There's no single right answer. Some distributions exist because someone needed a very specific tool and thought that designing a Linux distribution very focused on one task makes sense. And indeed, that exists. There are some really good distributions out there that are very purpose-driven. For instance, Clonezilla. Its exclusive purpose is to clone hard drives and copy them byte for byte to other hard drives. And it's one of those tools that, as a systems admin, I couldn't have lived without. Other distributions exist because someone's gift or talent in this world of technology happens to be assembling parts of a system and making it bootable. And so they release a Linux distribution. If you happen to like what they're doing, then you can use their distribution and get at least some of the part of setting up your preferred environment done in advance for you. Ultimately, I think there's a little bit of that in any distribution. After all, there are plenty of Linux distributions to choose from at this point, so some portion of your decision on which one to use often is based on how close to your ultimate picture of a perfect operating system for day-to-day -day use does that distribution come. And finally, there's the community aspect. You can interpret the word community in whatever way you want. Some people picture it as a bunch of friends gathered around a table, using computers together and joking. Other people think of it as a support network. When you have a question, where do you go for the answer? You want someone who's experienced with the same thing that you are using, so naturally you want there to be a community of people who can answer questions. In fact, this is such an appeal that some of the really big Linux distributions have support contracts that they sell to big businesses. 
But which one should you use? With all of these choices, where do you go first? My official answer to that question, which I am asked a lot, is that you should use whatever works for you. That sounds oversimplistic, but don't misunderstand me. I literally mean what works for you. In other words, I want you to find a Linux distribution that when you put it into your computer and boot, and then you install it, and you reboot, everything on that computer works just as if though you had gone out to the store and purchased that computer with Linux already on it. If the first distribution you try does not result in that experience, then try a different distribution. And keep trying a different distribution until you find the one that makes you think you just got a new computer. Don't worry about whether your Linux distribution is cool or widely known. Generally speaking, Linux is Linux, and while there are lots and lots of different variations on how it's all put together, it all basically does the same thing at the end of the day. And when you're just getting started out, the most important thing to you is to have a usable computer. Now the exception here is if you're getting into Linux because you want to break things. And believe me, that was one of the reasons that I got into Linux. I wanted to mod my computer, and so when something broke, it gave me a chance to learn more about Linux, more about computers, and I loved it. But generally speaking, you're going to have enough to learn with a working Linux computer. Remember, you have 20 years of computer usage to catch up on in Linux. That is, you've used another OS your entire life. Spend time with Linux, get to know it, plenty of things will break, be patient, have fun, keep in mind that it's all a learning experience. And later on, when you're better at Linux and better with computers in general, you'll be able to shop around and find maybe a different distribution that does something different. Let's talk really briefly about why you might want to use Linux and open source in general. Again, if you're listening to this episode, I'm kind of assuming that you're on board anyway, but maybe you aren't. Maybe you're not sold on the idea. So here's a couple of different reasons that open source appeals, certainly to me, and maybe to you. First of all, it's $0 computing. This was a big factor for me, because I was, when I first switched to Linux, running out of money. I'd just dropped out of university because I didn't have any money, and I'd been trying to find a career in the media business. It wasn't working out for me, and I stumbled into computers and realized that this was an industry that not only excited me, but that I could get into for free. I could learn all of this stuff myself for little to no investment aside from my time and brain power, and really, really excel at. And that is, in fact, how it turned out. Now, I could not have, literally could not have done that if it hadn't been for the zero-dollar aspect of open source. In fact, I'd tried to build a career in computers on a non-open source platform for years and was finding that I was not able to afford the software that everyone told me I needed in order to actually succeed. Not so with open source. It is zero dollars if you need it to be zero dollars. Now, if you're capable of contributing back financially, then by all means you're free to do so. And if you're able, then you should because people are producing this stuff for zero dollars. And like it or not, in today's world, one great way to say thank you for anything is to give money. But if you are finding yourself strapped for cash, and you want to get into computing, or you want to take your computing farther, 
than what you've been able to achieve so far. Or you just need a computer that works, and you can't afford a brand new one, then Linux and open source is a very real and useful option. Aside from being zero dollars, it is also available to everybody, and the zero dollar part is part of that, but there's a certain philosophical element to this. And personally, I tend to feel funny about things that are exclusive. I just tend not to like things that exclude people based on any criteria, whether it's finances, level of privilege, whatever that may be defined as, certainly not on ethnicity, sexual preference, gender, age, or any of the other things that you can think of. For all the fancy marketing that Windows and Mac OS tends to do to make it appear that they are mostly interested in improving the world, and in building communities, and empowering people to do things, to keep in touch, or to be creative, fact of the matter is, they don't provide their software for free. And even if they did, they aren't truly providing their software for free because there's always the condition that you rely on Microsoft or Apple to continue to maintain their software and to continue to enable you to use it and that you trust them in any way that they ask you to trust them. And you have no choice in that matter because no one can see the code, or rather the only people who can see the code have signed non-disclosure agreements and are legally forbidden from discussing what they know outside of company walls. This may or may not have any kind of real effect on your life. I just happen to not like, on a philosophical basis, things that exclude others. And a company, even if their excuse is to make lots of money for their shareholders, that keeps its software out of the hands of people is being exclusionary. If you're okay with that, then maybe that's not a reason to use open source. If you don't tend to like that, then open source is a way to follow through on the gut instinct that you might have that being inclusive is the more natural and certainly healthier state for us humans. And then finally, open source and Linux being open source, it's hackable, it's learnable, it's customizable. This is kind of a trickle-down effect of it being open source, or open source is a trickle-down effect of, of this, but because it's all open, and because you own every bit of code that you install, you can then look at what you've installed. You can learn how it functions. You can find out cool ways to make it act differently if that's what you want. You can customize your environment. If you have a lot of initiative and a lot of curiosity about computers, you could even learn to program and write your own applications. That's no small undertaking, but there are some simple things that you can do in, in an afternoon rather than embarking on a big project that'll take you months. And sure, there are things that you can do on other operating systems the same way. You can learn to program on Windows or Mac OS. You can even use open source tools on those operating systems. But if you do, you must always remember that you're only getting to do that because Microsoft and Apple are allowing you to. And the moment they discontinue support for the thing that you have been doing, it all goes away. And they're not asking you for permission. They just take it away from you. That's not a cautionary tale. It's not imaginary. They've done it before, and they'll continue to do it in the future. 
If you're okay with that, then again, that's not a reason to use open source. If you're not okay with it, it's a great reason to use open source, and it's a great way to learn more about computing and technology in general. So how do you learn more? To learn more about Linux, about computers, how to build your own computer, how to hack on code, or how to create really cool works of art with nothing but free and open source software, as I've already said, you have to use it. That's the way to learn. Practice makes perfect. It's been said many times before, and it turns out to be really true. You have to use the thing whether you want to or not. That is to say, start using it. And when you get frustrated, and you will get frustrated, keep using it anyway. And at some point, you'll, you'll be doing something, and you'll realize that if you did this on your former OS, the one that you're comfortable with because you've used it for 20 years, it would only take you five seconds. And here you are spending two hours on it. That's frustrating, especially if you're really into efficiency, like I tend to be. But I promise you, if you get through that, then you'll have learned something, you'll have expanded your capabilities, your knowledge, your skill set, and you won't look back. Because once you learn that, then you're going to learn more on top of it, and even more. And next thing you know, you've been using Linux for three or five or ten years, and you're the expert in the room. It's a humbling experience, and one that really creeps up on you. But I promise you, it does happen. Now, aside from practice makes perfect and just use it, there are obviously other things that you can do. There are books out there that explain all manner of open source computing. Whatever your interest is, there's a book out there on the topic. If you're not really into book learning, then there are probably classes for it as well. There are companies out there that sell very specific Linux-based training. Sadly, a lot of it does seem to be pretty focused on the hardcore technology side of things. So if you're leaning more towards the creative aspect of open source, then the one book that I can recommend to you is my own. It is called Slacker Media. I did have a printed edition of it. Lately, it's been just digital and online because I felt like it was changing a lot. And so putting it on paper just didn't make sense. But you can find all of that information at slackermedia.info. That is slackermedia.info. It's geared towards specifically Slackware Linux. But I'm proud to say that it applies to a lot of different Linux distributions. Some of the very specific Slackware setup stages you can ignore, but the applications themselves are very solid. And then the other thing that you ought to do is tune in to the geek world. And again, I don't want you to think that getting into Linux insists that you must become a geek or really, really into computers. But if you start looking for interesting things around open source, then you're bound to find them. One of my favorite websites is opensource.com. That's the words opensource.com. Go there. There are years of articles there already, and new ones are being published daily, Monday through Friday. They are on all manner of computing, whether it's technical, lifestyle, creative, programming, infrastructure support, you name it, they've got an article on it. Subscribe to their blog or visit it frequently. Set it as your home page and just have a scroll through the front page every day. See if there's anything that catches your eye. You'll start to pick up things 
almost involuntarily. You'll, you'll discover new applications or new little tricks that you can try, new tweaks that you can make to your desktop, different desktops that you can try. You'll learn stuff, and because the articles are, are well-written and, and fairly brief generally, they're not too painful to get through. There are also real-life things that you can do. There are meetups and groups that get together to talk about open source and Linux. Obviously, this depends largely on your physical location. If you're in a small town, the likelihood of this happening, at least frequently, is a lot lower than if you're in a big city, where there are just lots of people with lots of different interests. They are called, simply, Linux User Groups, abbreviated as LUGS. If that is not your interest, with a little hunting, you can find communities online that are geared towards whatever you're interested in, whether it's the creative side of things or some niche that I'm not even aware of. The thing to keep in mind here is that you are free to give and take as much as you are willing to give and take. There aren't really any rules here. It's all open source. It's an open forum. It's a little bit like a bazaar. You go, you see what people are up to, maybe you join in, Maybe not. Maybe you set up your own booth. Who knows? It's up to you. And I think that's all I have to impart to you, dear listener. That's about it for this episode, I think. I'm going to leave you with a little bit of a definition. It's the four essential freedoms, as defined by an organization called the Free Software Foundation. These four freedoms are kind of the at the core of open source. Freedom zero, we start at zero because computers start counting at zero. Freedom zero is the freedom to run the program as you wish, for any purpose. Freedom 1 is the freedom to study how the program works and change it so that it does your computing as you wish. Freedom 2 is the freedom to redistribute copies so that you can help others. And then freedom 3 is the freedom to distribute copies of your modified version to other people. Frankly, I'm enough of a geek that I see how those four freedoms in the software world actually can be a little bit modified so that they apply pretty nicely to just real life in general. The modern world is one that is increasingly based on technology. If we don't own that technology, then I think it's fair to say that we're in danger of retaining liberty and independence from those who do. Open source puts the ownership of your technology squarely in your hands. The code that you install and the code that you download and run belongs to you, literally. It's licensed to belong to you forever. And now you know how to get it. So don't hang around listening to me. Go get it. listening to GNU World Order, I have been Klaatu, your friendly host. Feel free to contact me online. I can be found on IRC on the Freenode network as NotKlaatu. I often hang out in the Augcast Planet channel, the Slacker Media channel, and a few others. Or you can just message me directly. I have no problem with that. I'm also on Jabber as Klaatu at 404.city. You can also email me I'm Klaatu at member.fsf, as in freesoftwarefoundation.org. And finally, you can find me on the Mastodon network at mastodon.xyz slash at Klaatu. Generally, online, I'm either Klaatu or not Klaatu. 
This show's website is gnuworldorder.info. You can also find me posting shows on hackerpublicradio.org. And visit my info site, slackermedia.info, all about multimedia and Linux and open culture. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.